Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, April the 19th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you can email me, Mike Silva at TheTalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody's healthy and safe out there as we continue through these uh, very challenging times. And as I told you, every week, despite the fact that right now we have the baseball season and life on pause, I'm going to try to bring you something a little bit different here with the Talking Mets podcast. And the last couple of times, to be quite uh, frank, it wasn't as much of a Talking Mets podcast as it was a, you know, let's figure out what the baseball season's going to look like and what's going on with baseball. And we've been talking about what the league could look like uh, post this uh, virus, what the different, whether it be the Japanese proposal that's been thrown out there or the Arizona proposal, what's been thrown out there, what that looks like. But today I wanted to get a little bit back to Mets and I have an interesting segment. It's something a little bit different. I think it's something that you'll be surprised that I'll bring up. But one era in Mets history that we don't really talk about is the 73 Mets. I think because they lost the World Series, I think it gets thrown in there. They get forgotten because of 69. It's usually 69, Mets stink, 80s, then the 90s, and then so on and so forth. So that era gets forgotten, and a Yankee, a very historic, well-known Yankee was at the front of that, which was Yogi Berra, the manager of the Mets during that time, and another manager in Mets history that doesn't get really talked about or thought about very much. 
A book has just come out earlier this month by John Pessa. Now, John is the founding editor of ESPN, the magazine. The book is Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. And this is as about a thorough look into the career of and life of an athlete as there is. I had a very uh, great opportunity to get John on the program, had a chance to read the book, specifically focused, obviously, on the Mets years for this podcast, which spans a decade. So it spans a decade, and you know that's something that I think when uh, you know we look back, we don't realize that Yogi managed the Yankees, got fired after winning 99 games, and they lost Game 7 of the World Series just before the Yankees collapsed, goes across town when Casey Stengel is still the manager of the Mets to manage or be a coach of the Mets, doesn't ever really get the job. Wes Westrom, Salty Parker, Gil Hodges comes in, the rest is history. Then Gil all of a sudden dies of a heart attack, and Yogi's thrust into the spotlight with a team that had expectations, had all that pitching, the Matlock, Seaver, Kuzman, McGraw, Rusty Staub in his prime, all these players in their prime, and with that historic pitching, expectations were to win, and they nearly did, and there were some controversial decisions made in that postseason, specifically in the World Series, about how he handled Matlock and Seaver on short rest, very tough series to lose to Oakland, a series that, just like with Cincinnati, where the Mets were the underdogs, they were in the midst of that dynasty, the A's, the Mets beat the Reds, the big red machine, before they won their titles, but they could have very easily been what could have been the end of the A's three-peat right there in 1973. And uh, lo and behold, you know, that's uh, that's a period of time that the Mets are not really viewed or looked at and I think is forgotten about. But I'm sure there's many in the audience that grew up during that time that have very fond memories because that period of 70, 71, 72, 73, even to a certain degree, 74, 75, and a little bit of 76, there weren't bad Mets teams. There were teams that, couldn't really get out of that 500, just above 500. But there were teams that, with a little bit of this or a little bit of that happening, could have maybe, and, and that happened in 73 as the division came down to that level, could have maybe won a little bit more, maybe been in the postseason another time. Very much a shame that that historic pitching, which could have included Nolan Ryan, that was one of the, the moves they made to trade Nolan Ryan for Jim Fagosi, which could have thrown Ryan into the mix. Amazing that they built that kind of staff Probably the best, better than the 80s Mets, the best, certainly better than uh, the young guns that went to the 2015 World Series. That staff might be the best collection of Mets arms in the history of uh, of the organization and, and very much the reason why they were able to win a pennant in between uh, the dark years of the 70s and the miracle of 1969. So we're going to take a quick break. When we return, John Pessa, author of the book Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. He'll be joining me, and we're going to focus on the Mets years, 1965 to 1975, when Yogi was a coach and manager of the Mets and got them to a World Series. Before that, let's take a quick break, and we'll have John Pessa, author of the book Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, right after this. And this fly ball looks as though it will give the Mets the go-ahead run. But home plate umpire Augie Donatelli sees it otherwise, and Yogi and the Mets just go wild.
folks, and judge for yourself. But if you ask me, what the heck is Donatelli doing sprawled out on the ground? I'm joined by author of the book, Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, John Pessa. Uh, just came out recently, early April. John is the founding editor of ESPN the Magazine. Great read here. I know this is a Mets-centric show, but Yogi spent a decade of his life with uh, uh, the Mets, and I know he's known for the Yankees, and John's with us now. And John, pleasure to have you on. Uh, crazy time to launch a book for sure. Maybe not a bad time in the sense where now everybody has an itch for baseball, a chance to kind of read a book about a very popular New York figure, and hopefully uh, you've been getting, I know you've been getting some great reviews, so welcome to the program. How are you? Good, Mike. How are you doing today? I can't complain, and you know, when I first saw the uh, the solicitation for the book, I'm like, hmm, Yogi Berra, and, and obviously you get the Yankees and the feuds with George and the Hall of Fame credentials, but what I thought about, obviously this is a Mets-centric show, is that Yogi spent a decade with the Mets, and that started after his first managerial stint in 1964, where he wins 99 games. He loses the World Series in seven games. He's, he doesn't know it, but he's on the back end of the Yankees dynasty. And that's where the whole thing starts, where Yogi leaves the Yankees and begins his Mets tenure that lasted a decade. This was, uh, first of all, I got to tell you, in doing the research, when I was thumbing through things and I came to a picture of uh, Carmen, uh, his wife, uh, sitting on his lap, uh, and they're both dressed in that uniforms. It was a little jarring. Um, as a Yankee fan, you know, I just don't think about um, Yogi with the Mets. And he was there for, for a, a good 10 years. Um, you know, the Yankees fired him. Actually, they fired him in August without telling him and never thinking he'd get to the World Series. So it would have been interesting to see what would have happened had he won if they still would have fired him, since, especially since they were already talking to a new manager who beat him in the World Series, Johnny Keane. So Casey, you know, Casey and, and Yogi had a special relationship. Casey never talked to his players. He only talked to him through the press. And the only one he ever talked to was Yogi. And he let Yogi basically run the pitching staff, the most important part of your team. Um, and, you know, he played Yogi to death when, when he was a player. And when they asked why he did that, he said, when I play Mr. Barrow as catcher, we win World Series. So it made a lot of sense for him to play him that much. But he comes to the Mets as a coach um, of a team that's losing, you know, 100 games a year, but is still very popular in New York. Um, and then he ascends to manager when Gil Hodges passes away. From reading the book, Yogi, after the Yankees experience, the impression I get is he was very content being a coach. There was never any, at least through uh, your research, thought of him succeeding Casey Stengel. They had West Westrum, they had Salty Parker, then of course Gil gets the job. It sounded like Yogi was content up until the day Gil passes away suddenly. He never had – the managing wasn't going to be something he was looking to do going forward again. Well, I'll tell you, Mike, the person in the family who really didn't want Yogi to manage was Carmen, his wife. And she looked at those years as a coach as this is the greatest thing. You know, I love this life. We get to do everything. He doesn't have the pressure of being the star player. He doesn't have the pressure of being manager. Life is wonderful. And, and Yogi was, was content being a coach. He loved being in, uh, on the field. He loved teaching players what he knew. Um, but there was, a, there was a drive for him inside. He wanted to manage again. Uh, when, in fact, when they passed him over, 
uh, one of the top columnists of the New York Times basically called out his manhood saying, why are you still staying here? You want to manage. And the message just passed you over now for the second time. He offered Hodges, when, who he knew from the time Gil was in Brooklyn and uh, playing the World Series every year against Yogi's teams, and they were friends. But he walks in and says, listen, if you want your own people, I'll understand. I'll leave. And Hodges, you know, begged him, not begged him, but said, no, I, I want you here. You know, I, really, I value you. So he brought in his uh, rest of his coaching staff. Yogi was the only holdover. Um, they won the, the World Series in 69. Um, Yogi was very happy and certainly not, you know, as shocked as everybody else when Gil suddenly died of a heart attack right at the end of the spring training that was ending because there was a baseball strike, first ever baseball strike. And Yogi takes over a team that loses its, you know, a revered manager, you know, who took him to the, to the World Series in 69. Um, and he takes over you know, after a strike, um, and he does a really good job his first year. They win, you know, 83 games or 10 games over, over 500, um, and things look pretty good for the team. And then, of course, 72 comes, excuse me, 73 comes, and everyone gets hurt. They get hot late, and they win uh, the National League pennant with an 82-79 and 79 record, I believe still the worst record of anyone ever went to the playoffs, beat the Big Red Machine in five games. And, uh, and go up against a Hall of Fame Oakland A's team and are up three games to two. Um, in the, and, you know, and Yogi goes to uh, Seaver and asks him if he wants to go on three days rest. He does. He loses. Matlock does the same thing. He loses. They both lose by two runs. So really it's on the Mets hitters. And Yogi loses his last chance to win a World Series. John Pessa, author of the book Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, is with me. You can check him out at his website, johnpessa.com, also at John Pessa on Twitter. A uh, lot to unpack there as you went through Yogi's tenure with the Mets, and really that was the point after that World Series where things started to go south. The difference between Gil and Yogi as people, and you talk about it when he takes the job, it, these are very different individuals. Gil was stern. Gil is an authoritarian, uh, very stoic. Yogi's a people's uh, or player's manager or a people person, and maybe a little bit too nice. That's one of the descriptions some of his players, uh, either off the record or on the record, bring up about him. So it was a very big shift for this team that was used to the authoritarian Gil Hodges. No question. I mean, you know, obviously they won, they respected Gil, and they liked Gil enormously. Um, but, you know, there certainly was a segment of the team which was like, okay, you know, this is like playing in the army and you're taking the joy out of it. And here comes Yogi, who just believes, look, if you're in the major leagues, you should know how to play baseball. And my job is to make things, put everyone in the right position to succeed over a long schedule, not for a week, not for a month, but for the long 162 uh, schedule. And so there were, there were uh, players who really responded to that kind of um, a manager. And, uh, you know, they loved playing for him. Um, you know, some he got in, you know, there were some things like Cleon Jones who, who created problems for him. And he had, a, you know, a, um, an up and down relationship with Tom Seaver and Rusty Starr, who was a star outfielder. Um, and stars are, you know, that's really what managing is all about is trying to get your, you know, if you can get your stars on board, um, then you're, uh, you know, then you're halfway there. And he was able to do that. And, uh, but, you know, when he finally was fired, I think, which was a relief for him, um, he knew it was coming the next day. 
Uh, he goes back into the Mets locker room, something I've never seen in all the years. I've been in doing this for 46 years, and I've never seen anything like this, where he just goes in and, sh- you know, happy and shaking everyone's hands, thanking him for taking them to the World Series, and everyone in the locker room watched when he went up to Seaver because Seaver had been advocating for him to be fired. And he said, listen, Tom, thanks for getting us to the World Series. I owe you a lot. Good luck in the future. And it was completely sincere, and he's walking out the, the, the locker room, and there's a scene where, you know, there's a crane pull, 30 years old, but a 10-year veteran. And, you know, he tells the writer, he goes, you know, Yogi, Yogi's a, a, a really great guy. He's, the only thing is he's probably too nice to be a manager as he's walking out. And, um, you know, that, that did that just pluses and minuses to that style. Absolutely. You know, it's funny you brought that up because that was one of my points. I'm reading the part where he's talking to the media the day that he gets fired or the day after he gets fired. Roy McMillan's the manager. He's going in talking to the new manager, going in talking to the players. Never heard of – I mean, this would never happen today. Yogi Berra never happened today. And and the media, they were – from what – reading your your recap of this – there was no knives out for him. Nobody was criticizing him, maybe because he's a Hall of Fame catcher. At that point, he already been inducted to the Hall of Fame. But it, it sounds like the players were the ones that had the issue. Yes, there was the unnamed quotes in the paper. It's not like there was a call. At least there appears to be a call to fire him throughout the subsequent years of 73 when the team was waiting around 500 and, and, and basically underachieving. Right. I think there were a couple of things that, that went on. Uh, first of all, you know, when you've won, you've been to the World Series, you've been, you know, right there just about winning it, and then you start losing and players are injured. You know, people start grumbling about who makes, the, you know, about the decisions. And, and one of the most, you know, one of the people who complained the most, and I've met and interviewed Tom Seaver many times, a uh, really bright man, really knows baseball, but thinks that, you know, the way he thinks is, is the right way, which is great, except that when your manager says, okay, we're doing it this way, that's his job. And Seaver didn't respect that, um, not, not to the degree that he needed to. So really, Seaver waged a campaign and in the press um, to get Yogi fired. And then there was the unfortunate uh, incident with Cleon Jones, who was o- always either really good or really bad, but that was the year that uh, um, he refused to go out to left field when Yogi told him to go out and, uh, and, and play defense. And that was, and Yogi laid the line down and said, okay, to the management, it's either, either you get rid of him. You know, Yogi could take a lot, but that was just outright insubordination. And it's like he was never going to be able to control the team if Cleon Jones was still on it. The Mets management took five days, let Yogi dangle, let Jones dangle, completely mishandled it. And that just really just wrecked that. That really helped wreck the season for them. So, you know, it was a case of Seaver advocating and, you know, the kind of bungling management that the Mets had at that point that ended up with Yogi without a job. And he quickly went over to the Yankees. You know, he went back to the Yankees as a coach in 1976. And for the first time since 1964, the Yankees were back in the World Series in Yogi's first first year with them. And what's interesting, I hear you talk about Seaver and Cleon Jones. Cleon had the off-the-field issues that weren't Yogi's fault as well. And Seaver, uh, he was the man on, on that team. And he would you know, put his way out of New York in a couple of years down the road after yeah, that. Yeah. But the concern with was with Dick, With a feud with Dick Young, who helped drive him out. With Dick Young. Right, yeah. exactly. But the, the guy they were concerned about was Willie Mays, because Willie's at the end of his career, probably three, four years after. He's in his early 40s, uh, probably shouldn't have been playing anymore. They bring him in right. uh, because they feel that'll help 
inject a little bit of life uh, into the club. And he's a backup, and, and he provides a little bit. That was the guy, and then it turns out Willie wasn't a problem. He accepted his role uh, in his last year. I found that interesting because if you thought of anybody that would be the malcontent, it'd be the former star coming been, in thinking that he's still playing center field. And he was he was malcontent for the last three years with the Giants. And, you know, Willie never got over them moving from New York to San Francisco. In New York, he was, he was God. And for good reason, he was an amazing, amazing baseball player. When they went to San Francisco, Orlando Cepeda and Willie McCovey were coming up, and they were, you know, dominant baseball players, and they were theirs. You know, they, this is a new franchise, I mean, a new city, and, and the San Francisco fans loved them. And, you know, they loved Willie, but he wasn't Willie Mays like he was in New York. And you know, I think he was, that was one of the many things that turned him into a bitter man that everyone knows that, uh, about him now. So when you've got to give great credit to Bob Sheffing, the general manager, who when they traded for him, and the reason they traded for him was because Joan Payson, who owned the team you know, since the exception, he, he was her favorite player. And when the Giants made him available to anybody, um, she said, get him. And so Sheffing sat down with Willie and said, listen, this is Yogi's team. You can't set your own schedule. Um, you got to do what he tells you to do. If, and that does, that's basic baseball. So if you accept that, um, great. I think you can help us. If you can't accept that, we're going to have problems. So I think Willie knew from, from the outset that this is what he had to do. And boy, it's, it's awfully hard to, you know, to, to disrespect Yogi Berra and, um, he's just such a nice guy, and people just like playing for him. So I think that, you know, I think Yogi handled it well. I think Sheffing handled it well, and I think Willie handled it well. What I'm amazed by, and I'm with uh, John Pessa, author of the book Yogi, uh, Life Behind the Mask. Great read uh, about Yogi Berra's life. And we're focusing on the Mets years, but whether you're a Mets fan or a Yankees fan, uh, great in-depth look at uh, someone that hasn't really been – uh, I guess, looked at, sometimes falls behind some of the greats like Mantle and what have you on those Yankee teams. But as we're talking about these players, and I laugh because all these players, as you, whether they're from the 80s, the 70s, you hear them today say players today, they're not like how they were back then. We wouldn't have done this. We wouldn't have done that. I'm listening to you talk about Seaver and Willie Mays. I'm listening to anonymous quotes in the press. You're a longtime journalist. This is 1973. It's the same today. It's a little different the way it's handled. In some ways, I, I'm reading the, the kind of interaction that the players and Yogi have with the press. It's more honest and transparent than anything today. But people act like back then players were just about the uniform. None of this sounds like anybody was anything but what you would expect from star players today, the egos and all this other stuff. Yeah, I think it was just, I mean, different kind of press, um, different interest uh, level, and different things at risk. I mean, right now... Um, baseball players are their own companies. I mean, they make, you know, starting salary in baseball is $660,000, another $200,000 for your, for your card contract, and you easily pick up another fifty dollars to $100,000 in just odds and ends that you're able to do because you're on the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox. So, so breaking in, you're already making a million dollars. A lot of these guys, like, look what Garrett Cole signed for. I mean, that, he's, he's a business. And they're very careful. There's a lot of people between them and the press. And, and you know, the, the chances that they, you know, everything they say is carefully weighed about how it's going to affect their image and their income and everything else. Back then, you didn't have that. And so, yeah, it was definitely more fast and loose and people talked. Um, and, um, 
it made things uh, certainly colorful, um, I'm sure. But if you were in the middle of all that, it, it didn't feel that way. I look at Yogi's managerial part of his career, whether it's the Mets or the Yankees, and I, I look at wrong place, wrong time. 1964, end of the dynasty, and the Yankees probably weren't ready to accept that. Comes to the Mets, they trade Nolan Ryan. They have a lot of injuries. Yeah, yeah they get into the World Series. They get into the World Series, uh, but they, they pitch their way in the World Series, and in short series, this tournament, a little bit of luck. Then he goes back to the Yankees, and he takes over in 84 in the middle of George, and a, and a guy who's described as a nice guy, nice manager, the worst possible time to be involved with the New York Yankees and, and that whole snake pit. Uh, it never worked out as a manager, maybe because he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, he had challenges, there's no question. I mean, I, I was a sports editor um, during the George years, um, and especially in the 80s. In the 80s, I had trouble hiring people to cover the Yankees because nobody wanted to do it. And this is the prime beat. But nobody wanted to do it because George was driving everybody crazy. And um, so, yeah, that was a really difficult thing. The, you know, his first year as manager was, was a difficult thing. He was, he, you know, that team that was thought that anybody could manage it to a World Series, everybody, all the stars broke down. Um, it was an aging and injured team as, you know, they finished sixth and last in the next two years. So obviously, Yogi, you know, bringing that team to a World Series was an incredible accomplishment. And, you know, you got to say the same things with the Mets. I mean, you, you look at that 73 team, had a great pitching staff, you know, Kuzman and, and Seaver, of course, and Gentry, um, even though they traded away Nolan Ryan, uh, didn't have much hitting. And he gets he's up three games to two on a, on a team that's in the Hall of Fame, that Oakland A's team. So you got to say, wow. I mean, he's, uh, yes, he had a lot. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But he was still managed to be successful. First manager ever to take a world a team to the World Series in the American League and the National League. Um, there's a lot of managers who've managed who've never taken the, a team to the World Series. Period. So I look at Yogi and say, yeah, it would have been great if things would have would have been a great situation for him. But look what he did in a bad situation. I thought he was really a terrific manager. And I'll tell you something funny, a couple of quick things before I let you go. First of all, they talk about him being the nice guy. He had more ejections, I'm on baseball reference. He was ejected more than Gil Hodges, so think about that. And then I, I also look at that, you mentioned earlier, the, the Seaver situation. The first of all, the A's, you just said it, A's outpitched them. They beat them at their own game. Mets couldn't yeah. score that series. Right. A's were just better. But pitching Seaver on short rest, that didn't hurt Seaver. He had a good outing that day. It yep. hurt Matlock. Matlock was also on short rest. So that's where maybe the decision, which isn't talked about, is that the guy that could handle it, that's no problem. Seaver would have probably pitched every day if he could. Matlock right. was the guy, young pitcher. Turns out to be an underrated a guy now that's going to be elected into the Mets Hall of Fame at some point this summer. Um, that's the guy, and that may be where the decision could have been made differently. And if they win that World Series, I know the if, if, if they don't trade Ryan, but I wonder if they, they makes that other decision. They win that World Series. He probably lost his contract. They may have more patience with him. And here's the thing. He lo he's looked at in Mets history in a way not the same as the Yankees, but a lot differently because that 73 team gets forgotten in the midst of the 80s Mets, the 69 Mets, and then subsequently. It's very right. interesting how close he was to being a Mets managerial icon, even though he's a Yankee, and he'll always be remembered to be a Yankee. It's very interesting I'm looking at that. That one well, I'll tell you, I, John Matlock was one of the people, one of the Mets that I talked to for this book, um, and he loved pitching for, for Yogi, um, and, you know, he talked about, we talked about the, those decisions, and he said, look, you know, as you were saying, 
Um, we didn't get outpitched. See if he gave up three runs in, in eight innings. And so the Mets just couldn't score. And, you know, Matt Lagg made two mistakes, you know, pitching on two days rest. Unfortunately, one went over the fence from Bert Campanaris. The other one went over the fence for um, uh, Reggie Jackson. Uh, and they lost, you know, four to two. I mean, so it's not like Matt, it's not like those decisions to pitch those pitchers didn't work. They did what they were supposed to do. They both pitched good games. Where were the hitters? I mean, you know, you, you, we couldn't go out there and hit for them. Um, you know, you, you pay them to hit. They didn't hit. And the other team was a little bit, you know, they were just that much better. This is a team that won three straight World Series. You know, I mean, that was the middle of the two, and they won another one. Um, and, uh, you know, they beat the Mets hitters. As you said, they beat them at their own game. They, out, you know, they, they, they shut down the Mets uh, offense, which wasn't that great to begin with. But, you know, they if you don't score, you can't win no matter how great you're pitching. And I look at Yogi in a Mets uniform. We talked about this before we, you came on the air. Uh, today, that would be sacrosanct. Oh, my God, a Yankee Hall of Famer, Derek Jeter in a, uh, a Mets uniform. And we've seen Strawberry and Gooden in Yankees uniforms, and Willie Randolph managed the Mets uh, after being a, a longtime Yankee. But this is Yogi Berra, and I, and I know you said if you're a Yankees fan looking at that now, maybe in that time, that's got to bother you a little bit. Your guy, Hall of Fame catcher, arguably the best catcher maybe up there all time, managing the Mets, even in the 70s when it's not like today with the back and forth. That's got to hurt a little bit looking at that. Well, you know, it'd be one thing if he quit the Yankees and signed with the Mets for a better deal. Yankees fired him. You know, I mean, I would have loved for him to have stayed with the Yankees. They, you know, they fired him. And so he wanted to stay in baseball, and he, and he, and he was at the Mets. And, you know, um, you know I'm, I'm as big a Yankee fan as you're probably going to find. Um, my father made me a Yankee fan when I was four years old, and that was just, you know, part of our, our life. Um, but I rooted for Yogi when he was uh, the manager of the Mets. I wanted to see him win. And, um, you know, he still was a Yankee to me, even though he was, you know, managing the Mets. And I was just wishing him, you know, you know nothing but success, especially since the team that I was following um, pretty, was, was pretty terrible. You know, I mean, the Yankees were awful. Still a Yankee fan, but I wanted Yogi to succeed. And I think a lot of Yankee fans did. So before I let you go, though, the thing I always like to ask is you go into this project. You obviously grew up a Yankees fan. You're a longtime journalist. You've seen a lot. This is a guy that a lot has been talked about over the years. What was the one thing, if you can pick one thing, it doesn't even have to be Mets-related or his Mets tenure, that you learned about Yogi that you didn't know going in, that now you walk out, that you find most interesting for someone who wants to purchase the book and kind of dive into the career of, uh, of a great Hall of Famer? Well, there's two things that are inter intertwined to make you know, the one answer for the question. Um, I, you know, I knew Yogi uh, at press conferences. I never sat down and had a long talk with him. Um, and I, I was surprised to find out that the guy who was so um, outgoing and so uh, chatty when he was on the field, talking to the umpires, talking to the players, um, sometimes arguing with the umpires, as you say, he, he would get ejected um, because he was so passionate about the game. Uh, when, but off the field, he was somewhat shy and, and very, um, uh, you know, and, and didn't talk all that much. And that was, that, was a, uh, that was a big surprise. And I think it played into the, the other. I mean, I knew, I mean, I, I, I started with the Yankees 
started with the Yankees. I became a Yankee, came of age as a Yankee fan in 1960. I was eight years old, and you know that was a, one of the shocks of my life that the Yankees lost. I thought the Yankees were supposed to win the World Series, um, and you know having having them beaten by the by the Pirates. So I knew that uh, you know I knew an older Yogi, um, and I had heard that early in his career he had faced a lot of verbal abuse for his appearance, for his. Italian heritage. I didn't realize how uh, how much discrimination it was against Italians in the 30s, 40s, and the, and the 50s um, for his perceived lack of intelligence, for his physical appearance. They used to call him Quasimodo, Nature Boy, the Ape in in press. I mean, the headline on 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 on, on uh, Arthur Daly, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the New York Times. The headline on one of his columns is about Yogi Berra is Nature Boy. Can you imagine having that now? Not today. Um, no so I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I, exactly. I didn't, I did not uh, understand the depth and the length of the verbal abuse and, and personal verbal abuse that Yogi took most of his, uh, of, of his career and, and how he emerged out of that. That would make most people resentful, I think, and, and angry. And he, I mean, it bothered him. He didn't let it, people see that it bothered him, but it bothered him. Um, but he comes out of that, you know, as, as a people person, as someone who just you know, loves to hang around in a ball game and talk to people, and he, and he emerges as a happy guy, not a resentful bone in his body. And that, I thought, was remarkable. And I really wanted to, you know, once I discovered that, to really plumb that and find out why and how you do that, because I wish everyone was like that. That's a great point. Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. John Pessa, you get him at johnpessa.com, at John Pessa on Twitter. Before I let you go, what do you got? Anything else coming up? Uh, appearance? I mean, appearances are tough, obviously, now, but things you're doing radio, television-wise, or anything? Yeah. There's no way they can, uh, can catch you. Sure. Michael Kay, um, who I've known since he was a beat writer at the New York Post, which takes us both of us way back to the early 80s. Um, he does a great job now on the Yes Network and, you know, the simulcast that he does. And I'm going to be on with him Tuesday at um, 630. Um, and I'm going to uh, this is going to be interesting. I'm going to tape a segment for, for Yankee magazine with Jack Curry. And I haven't had a haircut for two months so my wife is going to learn how to cut hair so that i won't look like a wild man that, you know i think that all of us in new york are going through that aren't we and, right. well, so, i got i got a haircut right before the deadline but it's gonna get if we're if we're not getting haircuts till after may 15th i'm gonna be in your boat in a few weeks so i yeah, feel for you it, on that. It is. i'm glad we can I, i'm glad that there are some things you know you and i don't live very far apart on long island and i'm glad there are some things that we can laugh about through this it's been a really difficult thing, and this has been a pleasure to do with you. And you know, having the chance to talk about the book has been a great distraction for me, and I'm really hoping that if people buy the book, um, that it would be a, a great way to kind of like fill the void for baseball, which I dearly, dearly miss. I, I, baseball's on in my house from spring training until the last game of the World Series. It's just the background music of, of life, and it just is. And it's, it's gone. It's you know, one of the things that really makes – what we're going through, um, tough and tangible for me, you know, obviously we deal with the number of people who have, who have it. And unfortunately all the people who have, who have died, but just the daily life, um, you know, that you really see the things that you um, sometimes just take for granted that they're always going to be there. So I can't wait until we get baseball back. 
I do. Well, John, you've been very generous with your time on a weekend. Thank you again. We'll catch up. I'll check you out on the Yes Network and on Michael K's show. And be well and, and be healthy, be safe, and let's talk again. All right, my friend? Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. You have a great day. Thank you. That's John Pesso. The book is Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. You can get him at johnpesta.com, at johnpesta on Twitter. And I know it's a Yankee-centric book, but I, I just when I got the promo from my contact in uh, public relations, I just said, well, you know, let's look at that period of Yogi's career that was Mets-connected and a team, the 1973 Mets, that gets overlooked. I think all of us as Mets, whether you're following the Mets, reporting on the Mets like I do, longtime Mets fan, that's the team I think you forget about because they didn't win. You still talk about 2000. You still talk about 2015. You forget about 73. Just interesting. At least I feel that way. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Uh, final segment here. And what an interesting conversation with John Pessa. And I think even if you're a Mets fan and don't want to read anything about the Yankees, I mean, at the very least, get the book, read about the Yogi Berra Mets years. But I think in, at this time, it really would be interesting. And I always, like I said, I read a book recently about the building of the Yankees' uh, 1990s dynasty. You could learn a lot about the current game of baseball from reading about history and reading all these great works. It just expands your mind, uh, makes you a better fan, makes you enjoy the game more, makes you understand what's going on more, and it also gives you an idea about how you can assess how your team is doing uh, by today's standards because you look back and a lot of times history repeats itself. The same issues same issues with clubhouse chemistry and stars not liking the manager and former stars struggling to make the transition into uh, an authoritative role, coaching, managing. They, they existed before we were alive. They existed before the modern era of sports. And you see all that basically come alive within this book. So uh, Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, John Pessa, at John Pessa on Twitter, uh, johnpessa.com. Go check out his website. Go get the book. Plenty of time now. We're not going to have baseball for a while, so plenty of time to catch up on your reading. And if you want to call it the pandemic reading list, this is one of those I would add to it, whether you're a Mets fan, Yankees fan, baseball fan. It was interesting, uh, before I let everybody go, how uh, John spoke about really missing the game and how baseball is the background to the spring, the summer, whether you're watching the game or not. I always say that broadcast booth, and as Mets fans and, and covering the Mets, Gary, Keith, and Ron, are, it's such a privilege to have them as your broadcast booth because of who they are, the professionalism. And I think recently you saw that where they had uh, the three of them announce uh, a video game uh, replay of what I think was a Mets-Astros game that would have been played on that day. And you saw the three of them do the broadcast, and it was they were each in their homes. They were not together. But they were themselves. They were announcing a game that wasn't real, a video game. They weren't together, but you could see the symphony. So I found that interesting. So I agree with John with 
the background noise. And I do agree. I think now as we hit towards the late April, end of April, into May, and it really settles in that there's not going to be baseball for a while. And I think for the first time since I've been coming on the air, I have a lot of questions whether from multiple facets they could put a season together from a logistics standpoint, from a political standpoint. All different things have to happen. Uh, And the world, like I said last week, you really can't even think about this until the world first from a standpoint of business and people getting back to work and people who unfortunately unemployed hopefully being able to migrate their way back to, if not their prior industry or job, a new industry because of the, I mean, what is it now, 10 to 15% of the workforce is unemployed and unfortunately 22 million people, and and that's the number daily that really scares me. And before you you could even think about the luxury of, of professional sports, you really have to figure all that out and get through all that. So, you know, obviously here at the Talking Mets podcast, we're thinking about those people. And if you're one of them, know that if I could just give you a few 45 minutes, an hour's worth of distraction from the challenges that life brings right now. I, I consider that a privilege, and, a, and all my thoughts go out to you, and all my uh, wishes of good w- will and, and good luck go out to you. I was also uh, watching, and I thought about this as, and I, and I was going to bring it up earlier, but I decided to round it out here on the podcast about it. I was watching the Taiwanese broadcast, only an inning, really even half an inning, of Taiwanese baseball, so they're back, so they're they're playing, and uh, they've been able to to get past a, a lot of what's been going on there. Now there are no fans in the stands, but I will tell you, and I think it was uh, Andy Martino tweeted about it, and also Nelson Figueroa, a formerly of SNY, a former Mets pitcher, was tweeting about it, and that's how I found all this. There really wasn't a big difference in watching the broadcast there, other than the fact that the stands were completely empty. There was still players in the dugout. It was still baseball. There was still an umpire. Um, I believe I didn't. You know what's funny? I, I'm pretty sure there was an umpire. Uh, I didn't see any electronic strike zone. And I said to myself, watching that Taiwanese game, that if you could get back to this with no fans this year, and even if you have to trickle it, God forbid, into 2021, if you could get back where the game is the game, the schedule you play. As much of a schedule, like I, like I said, 81 games is the, the least amount I would sign up for to say, hey, this is a real season. And if the fans are the last thing that return, and that's the last thing that returns as we try to get back, and some people think it'll take a couple of years for sports to really build back to where it was, I would right now sign up for that. Now, in Taiwan, they still had the cheerleaders on the dugout. They had these cardboard cutouts of fans behind the dugout. And they had this constant music playing in the background. Now, I'm assuming when there's actually fans in the stands, just like in other uh, parts of Japan and Asian culture, that they're they're doing the drum beat and they're doing the constant chant, something that really isn't a part of the American uh, baseball experience unless it's something very unique in a very small span of time. I guess they're putting that as the background music. Maybe the constant music probably, if I were a player, would drive me nuts it's just kind of background noise unless there's a feeling from the players that they need that to get into that this is a real game. I personally, and I think once a player gets into the game, and and I think because they're professionals, they don't really even hear the crowd. Yeah, the crowd could jazz them up after the fact and what have you, and it definitely adds an important element. But I wonder if for us as fans, because I believe they're professionals and they'll go out 
and once their their gear turns into this is a real game, they're going to play the game just like any other game. Doesn't matter if there's one person, 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 people or nobody in the stands. What would be interesting and you might have to monitor it a little bit because of the old four-letter word would be to hear the banter from the dugout. How does the dugout sound? How do the players sound? Almost bringing you back to Sandlot Ball, to Little League, things like that. That you remember the dugouts with the, you know, razzing of the opponent or the cheering on. You don't really get a lot of that in professional baseball. It's part of it is because they're professionals and it's it's looked at negatively. But I think you could bring that back and maybe you would mic just like you did in spring training some of the players in a positive way, maybe more so on the bench than while they're out in the field. And I think it could bring an element and it could make a bad situation a little bit better, make it more of a television product and take away from the fact that you have an empty outfield with stands and empty stands. The only time you're going to see it is on fly balls. That's it. And let's face it, with what's been going on with teams not competing and the competitiveness of of certain organizations, there, there's been games the last few years that the outfield's been empty anyway, whether it be after a long rain delay, uh, a cold night during the week, a non-competitive team in September, or at any other point during the season. It's not the first time you're going to see that. So if they, if, if, if you have a chance to look at the, the Taiwanese league and look at how they're playing, just this morning I was watching, to me, I'd sign up for that. As long as you have a decent schedule, this putting the players in the stands six feet apart, quarantining them away from their families. At the end, the players are not going to approve of any of this unless they, A, think it's safe enough for them to do it, B, that they could see their families. They're not spending three months quarantined away from their families. They're not. They're not doing it, nor would I expect them to do it for sports. But if you can get that, and if the rest of life could get back to some point of normalcy that we're turning the corner, Sports is a luxury and has to be last. What I saw on the television from Taiwan this morning, I would sign up for right now for a 2020 baseball season. And I think eventually we'd get over the differences and maybe there'd be some uniqueness to hearing the bench jockeying, hearing the players, hearing them in their purest form, not scripted, not ESPN scripted. So it'd be something interesting. So Anyway, hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Talking Mets podcast. I want to thank again John Pessa. You can check him out on Twitter at John Pessa, johnpessa.com. Get the book Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Stitchell, Apple Podcasts, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy. The rest of your Sunday, be healthy, be safe. We'll be back with another edition of the Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody.
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.